You know, Ravi Zacharias is an international worldwide to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he writes about one particular interaction that he had with a leader from the terrorist group Hamas. And this is what he writes. Do you know why the Middle East is in the cauldron of hate? Because it's living with the logic of unforgiveness. I was once talking to one of the founders of Hamas, Sheikh Talal. And it was part of a group of people who had gone to the Middle East to try and bring people together and to have a peace table where they could talk. Sheikh Talal gave us a great meal, told us of 18 years he had served in prison and how some of his children had been lost in suicide bombings. When my turn came to ask a question, I said, Sheikh, forgive me if I'm asking you the wrong question, but please tell me, what do you think of suicide bombing and sending your children out like that? As he finished his answer, I said, Sheikh, you and I may never see each other again. So I want you to hear me. A little distance from here is a mountain upon which Abraham went 5,000 years ago to offer his son. And as the blade was about to fall, God said, stop. I said, do you know what God said after that? He shook his head, and I said, God said, I myself will provide. He nodded his head. I said, very close to where you and I are sitting is a hill. 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise and brought his own son. Only the blade did not stop this time. He sacrificed his own son on the cross. He just stared at me. The room was full of smoke, and with all of the security people, I said, I may never see you again, Sheik, but I want to leave this with you. Until you and I receive the son that God has provided, we will be offering our sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for a land and for power and for pride. I could just see the man's lips beginning to quiver. And he was sitting right next to me. And nobody said anything after that. But as we were walking out, Sheikh Talal went quickly and shook hands with everyone. And then he came over to me and grabbed me by the shoulders and kissed me on both sides of the face and patted my face and said, You're a good man. I hope to see you again. When you understand Christ's grace, it's an unparalleled message. In Hinduism, you pay with karma. In Islam, you never know if your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. But the grace of Christ comes to you and says, If any man comes to me, I will in no way cast him out. God's grace is truly amazing. We've sung about it this morning, but now we're going to look into the Word of God, and we're going to see what 
God himself tells us through the word of God about his grace. And what we're going to see first is this. Grace solves the problem of man's sin. Notice the 11th verse of Titus chapter 2. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, the Word of God is telling us that God had a purpose in the appearance of His grace. In order to understand this verse, we have to first of all think about what grace means. Dan did a great job of defining it before his scripture reading. And basically, grace means God giving us something that we have not earned, that we do not deserve, that we cannot merit. God gives it to us freely. But here, the Word of God is saying that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I like the way... This is also cast in the New American Standard. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This is the message that God wants us to understand. That something appeared, someone appeared, and he brought grace to us. And we'll see in this text that that person who appeared is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brought to us the opportunity to experience the grace of God in all of its fullness. When he came and added to his deity humanity, when he came and he lived among us, when he came and he willingly went to the cross to pay for our sins, rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, it was the ultimate demonstration of God's grace. That is when grace appeared in all of its fullness. And so here the Word of God is reminding us that the grace of God came for a purpose. And that purpose is our salvation. Salvation from what? From sin. From separation from God. Salvation delivers us from the consequences of sin and opens the way for us to experience a new life in relation to God. Grace is a wonderful thing. And God's purpose in sending Jesus To appear among us that first time was to bring salvation to all men. Isn't that a great promise? We live in a world that is crushed by sin. We live in a world where we see the effects of sin every day on the evening news. We live in a world where we see the effects of our own sin. But what God is promising us is there is a way out. There is a way for us to experience deliverance from these things. And it was provided by God himself sending his one and only son into this world to open the way for any who will trust him, who will embrace that grace that he offers freely by faith into their lives. 
Two passages of Scripture talk about this offer that God gives us. One is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, and it says this, We have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So God makes this offer of salvation available to any. Anyone who will respond to this offer can receive this offer. John writes, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. These passages of Scripture remind us that there is a loving God behind the grace that He extends to us. And that grace that He gives offers us a way to be delivered from separation from Him. To be delivered from our sins. Picture an ocean liner. You're on the ocean liner and you fall off. You don't know how to swim, so you're flailing in the water. And then somebody on board looks and they see you. And they throw you a life preserver. As you're just trying to keep your nose above water, that life preserver is there within arm's reach. And you know that it means salvation. Would any of us, understanding where we are, our predicament, say, no, I'd rather do it on my own? No, I'd rather try real hard. You know, I can learn to swim in the next five seconds if I try real hard. Obviously not. We would reach for that life preserver and hang on for literally dear life. And really, that's what we do with the offer of salvation that God gives us. God offers us a way to come into a relationship with him. And that way is provided by Jesus Christ. He is the life preserver. And what we're required to do is to reach out and take that life preserver. To come to the place to where we count on him for our deliverance, for our salvation so that we can experience forgiveness and a relationship with God the Father. passage that Dan read during the Scripture reading is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And listen to what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, the grace of God who appeared the first time, Jesus Christ, He is the provision for our salvation. It's not what I do. It's not my human effort or my human works that in any way bring me into a relationship with God. It is Jesus' offering on the cross that opens the way for me to experience forgiveness and a relationship with the Father. I can't boast about what I did to earn my salvation. All I can say is I am a sinner Saved by grace. The grace that God offered through Jesus Christ. But you know, grace doesn't stop with delivering us from sin. The grace of God works in our lives to change us. And notice the text goes on here in Titus chapter 3, verse 11. After it says in the 11th verse that this salvation has appeared to all men. It goes on in the 12th verse 
to say this. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God is something amazing. He gives us the ability to say no to ungodly things. You see, the grace of God changes us. If I try to reform myself before I experience the grace of God, I have nullified the very meaning of God's grace. God's grace means that he gives us something freely that we have not earned. But when I embrace the grace of God and by faith trust what Jesus did when he died on the cross for my sin, God begins to do a work in my heart and in my life to transform me. God's grace will train us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now let's think about what that means for a moment. The word train is really the idea of what the NIV translates as teaches here in the 12th verse. And what does it mean to train a child? We saw a glimpse into what it is to train a child this morning in the text that I read during the baby dedication. It has the idea of parenting, of walking your child and nurturing that child through development to protect them from harm and to teach them what is good. That's the idea of training. You know what happens in the home if we let the inmates run the asylum? We have a disaster. Our homes blow up. Parents are there to teach and to train their children to protect them, to give them guidance so that they'll know how to do life. And one of the things that parents have to teach is what not to do. Now, one of the things that my parents tried to teach me is don't stick a paper clip in a light socket. When I was a little kid, I was fascinated with light sockets. This paper clip, I know, would fit in that little slot. So I was dead set. I am going to stick that thing in there. And so one day when my mom wasn't looking, and she had already slapped my hand and told me no, I went ahead, made contact, and my arm felt like it was going to be jerked out of the socket. Amazing what kind of jolt one of those little paper clips can give you inside that light socket. Now, my parents were trying to train me. I could have avoided that, but I chose not to. And then I found that there are a lot of paper clips and light sockets in life. And as my parents trained me, they were trying to direct me away from those light sockets because they love me. And you know, that's what God does for us as well as the ultimate father. He teaches us to say no to ungodliness. You know what ungodliness means? It's the idea of totally disregarding God. Not giving him a thought. Ignoring him completely. That's the idea of ungodliness. And then going about life in such a way that we ignore him altogether and do our own thing, and live in our own way. Ungodly people have a disregard for God, and it leads to behavior 
that doesn't take moral boundaries into account. God wants to teach us to say no to those things for our good, for our protection. Then we can experience the kind of life that God intended us to have. That's what God's grace does, teaches us to say no. Notice he also says we will say no to worldly passions. Now, worldly passions, again, the idea is making decisions and having a worldview that totally disregards God and seeks to move in your own direction, doing the things that you want to do rather than the things that God has established for moral boundaries. Understand this. God wants us to say no to these things, not because God is some cosmic killjoy that's looking and saying, how can I deprive people of doing the things that they really want to do? But because God looks and says these things hurt people. They're harmful to people. They separate people from me. I don't want people to experience these things in their life because I love them. This is what God's grace does. But you know, good parenting isn't always just saying no. Good parenting also works toward integrity and character. Here the Word of God tells us that God wants to teach us through His grace to train us in being self-controlled, upright, and godly. So let's look at this in the text. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but it also trains us to live self-controlled lives. Now, self-controlled carries with it the idea of not just looking at something, having an impulse to do it, and then going and doing it. Hang the consequences. If it feels good, do it. Self-control is the opposite of that. Many of us have experienced the consequences of making an impulsive decision that didn't go well. And through maturity and growth, we learn that there are those things that we need to learn to say no to, right? Because we'll pay the consequences if we don't. God wants to teach us that kind of life. And His grace gives us the ability to do that. Notice He also says upright. Now upright carries with it just the idea of doing what's right. Isn't it great when you meet those people in your life who just do the right thing? They have so much integrity, so much goodness to them, that they're that person you can count on. You look at them and you say, I know they're going to do the right thing. God wants us to be that kind of person. The kind of person who does the right thing for our good, because he loves us, and for his glory, because he created us to reflect glory back to him. And then God wants us to be, the opposite of ungodly would be, godly. He wants us to behave in such a way that we think about him. So all of this is what God's grace would teach us. But then look at the very last part of that 12th verse. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We say yes to self-control, being upright and leading godly lives. And all of that takes place in this present age. 
right where we are, right here, right now. But you know, there's something that we have to look forward to beyond this life. And as we come to the 13th verse, we find the thoughts of the Apostle Paul as he's writing this shift to that. God secures for us a future that is full of hope and good. Look at that 13th verse. We're leading these lives by God's grace as he's training us while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two appearances are mentioned in this scripture. First appearance, Jesus coming and being born in a manger, living among us, dying on the cross, resurrecting, and going to the right hand of the Father. That's the first appearance. It's mentioned in verse 11 when the grace of God appeared to all men. But there's a second appearance that's promised in this text. And that appearance is when Jesus comes again. And for the child of God, they are waiting for that second coming of Jesus Christ as promised in Scripture. And we look forward to it. We wait it passionately. That's what God wants us to do as we wait for the Savior. Understand this. While we live in this present age, we need to live for the coming one. That's important for us to grasp. So here the Word of God is reminding us that we are waiting for the blessed hope. Isn't that a great term for Jesus' coming again? The blessed hope. You read the headlines of papers and I'm just thinking about the last couple of weeks, some of the articles that I've read, and they're alarming. I'm going to drown as global warming melts the ice caps and water covers me, and there'll be no one there to throw me a life preserver then, right? I'm facing annihilation because rogue nations are testing nuclear bombs that could level the planet. There are asteroids out there. And any one of those could take a course toward Earth and kablooey, I'm gone. Blessed hope? I don't think so. What about terrorists and dirty bombs? I mean, you run down the list and ours is a hopeless world full of fear and uncertainty. That super volcano that can go off and bring us all into a winter that's perpetual. Yikes. Blessed hope? If we don't have Christ in the mix and all of these random things are just lurking, waiting to take us out, ours would be a hopeless world. But understand this. The Word of God promises for those who place their faith in God the blessed hope of Christ's appearing. And look at how he's described in this text. We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 
Jesus is described in this text as, first of all, God. Isn't it great that the Savior that we worship is God? You know what this means? When Jesus died on the cross, because of the infinite value of Jesus as God, his sacrifice is sufficient to not only pay for my sins, but for the sins of an entire world. There's no limit. There's no place where the sacrifice of Jesus falls short because he is God. But more than that, he is also Savior. Again, this text is reaffirming again and again and again Jesus' mission. And his mission is to deliver people from sin. And that's brought out even more clearly as we look on the 14th verse. In the 14th verse, we see that he sacrificed himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Look at what this says. We are awaiting the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus sacrificed himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Isn't that the great message that God gives us in this text? The great takeaway. I stand separated from God because of my sin, but God has a solution. And that solution is Jesus coming into this world, adding to his deity humanity, and dying on the cross in my place. Jesus' own words recorded by Mark. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus' purpose in coming. To offer himself as a ransom for many. Any who will receive what Jesus freely offers can experience that ransom. You know what it means to ransom or to redeem something? It carries with it the idea of taking it and buying it. Jesus bought our forgiveness and our relationship with the Father and our deliverance from sin by shedding his blood on the cross in our place. When it says he became a ransom for us, what it's talking about is how Jesus became our substitute. Taking upon himself the death that we deserve because of sin and experiencing that penalty for you and for me. The book of Romans says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good one, some might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever gotten a gift card 
You know, companies sell gift cards because they're counting on something. You're going to lose that gift card or forget all about it, and they've just made 50 to to $100 by not providing a service. They love gift cards. And then there's that small print that they'll sometimes put on there that it expires at such and such a date, and they're hoping people forget about it, bust it out. Oops, it's expired. What do you have to do for a gift card in order for it to benefit you? You have to redeem it. You have to take it and use it in order, in order for it to, to work for you. And you know, it's the same thing with the offer that God gives us. God has given us salvation, and we can see the wonderful opportunity that we have to receive Christ as our Savior. But it requires something of us. We have to respond. We have to receive that gift that God has given us and use it as God has given it to us by responding to him. But understand that offer does have an expiration date. And the expiration date is if it goes unredeemed, unclaimed, it's no good anymore. And that's our expiration date, the moment that we pass. When we pass, we can no longer benefit from what God has freely given us. And that's why this text reminds us that Jesus gave himself for all of us to redeem us for his very own. And that brings us to the last point. Listen, the strength to be pure and do good comes from God alone. When Jesus redeems us and makes us new people, when the grace of God changes us from the inside out, we experience new life a relationship with the Father because of what Jesus did for us. He has purified us. One passage of Scripture puts it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great promise. When we look at the sin in our lives... We have two options. Ignore it or respond to what God has offered to purify us, to cleanse us of these things. Imagine you're on a trail and you come up to a beautiful waterfall and there's a stream running right through the forest and you're standing right on the edge and as you start to look around, you see garbage everywhere. Somebody has gone into what could be a pristine, beautiful place, and they've ruined it. So you know what you do? You start working toward cleaning the place up. You, through tremendous effort, go and you start bagging the trash. And there's so much there that after a day of doing it, you say, man, I'm going to have to come back tomorrow. It's starting to get dark. So I'll come back tomorrow and finish up. Well, you know what happens? Come back the next day, and it's worse than it was the day before. 
And so you walk upstream to see what's going on, and there's not a few items thrown out. There's a dump. And you could spend every day at that stream trying to clean it up, trying to get those pieces of garbage out of there, but they're coming right back. And you're stuck. See, what happens is someone has to clean up the dump in order to take care of that little spot in the stream. And you know, that's the way I view some people approaching sin in their life. They'll see something in their life that needs to be changed or needs to be gotten rid of. And they work and they work and they work and they're sincere in trying to eliminate it from their lives. But you know what they discover? That every time they try to remove it, they find it's back and worse than it was before. We can't clean up our own lives and come to the place to where we have purity. God needs to do the work of purification in us. He's gotten rid of the dump in our lives by Jesus offering himself on the cross for us. All we have to do is embrace what God has done. The text closes by saying that God wants to purify a people of his very own. God is passionately interested in a relationship with each and every one of us. Because God loves us. God wants to have us in a relationship with him that he originally created man to enjoy, but that sin ruined. So there's an invitation in this passage of Scripture to everyone. Jesus died on the cross for you. He bought you out from that sin. He wants to purify your life. He wants you to be his very own in relationship with him. And then he will do that work when we respond to what God freely offers. He will do that work of transformation in us. He'll change us. This morning, I don't know where you stand in your relationship with God. But I do know this. God has made a way for you to come into a relationship where you can experience forgiveness a relationship with him, and the hope of a future with him. And he offers it freely. What we must do is respond to what God freely offers by faith. And faith is very simply taking God at his word. This morning, if you don't know where you stand with God, you have the opportunity right now to come to a place to where you can see God make things right in you by receiving what he's given to you freely. So I invite you, open your heart to God. Thank him for sending his son into this world to die on the cross in your place to pay for your sin. Come to the place to where you say, God, my life is like that stream. There's a lot of garbage in my life that just needs to be taken care of.
I need to be cleansed. I need to be purified. And invite God to do that. And when you do, you will see God begin to change you, to train you in what it is to do the right thing. You could say the ball is in your court if you've never trusted Christ. The response that you make today will determine your outlook for the future. And God wants you desperately to spend that future with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text.